0: Welcome to the Scripps Talks. Today I have Chuck Borghese, who is both an alum of the school and a faculty member in the school, although taking a little hiatus this year, which we'll talk about. Welcome to the podcast, Chuck. It's great to be here, thank you. Tell me a little bit about what the last month has been like for you.
1: It's kind of been both harrowing and heartening, I guess I could say. I mean, the harrowing part is just the unknown. And you know, while, I, while we love where we live you know, my wife and I are together here. The inability to get out, and we also had a big event in our lives that is making this just that much more devastating. We had a happy, healthy grandson. My oldest daughter, Nina, had a baby, and she's here in town. We live in Columbus right now, and all we can do is FaceTime, and we go over there with supplies. I think that people think that that's really good public relations. I think it is on some level. But then there are some that get it on a different level. I'm blown away by it. If you go on Twitter and you look at Stakeums, I know this sounds crazy, but if you look at, you know, it's like I like to, I like to find things that I wish I'd done. On a really important level, I, I wish I'd been involved in this. Steakums, which is a frozen meat, you know, we all know what Steakums are. They've taken it upon themselves to be very journalistic and knowing their audience might be, not be as well informed as some other audiences. They've taken it upon themselves to be a source of real information in the COVID nineteen safety issues. What's actually happening? And I think that I think a brand like that is not only staying relevant, but advancing their relevance in a way that is really mind blowing. I think they know that their fan base or their, their customers are vulnerable. I think they're worried that their customers may not be getting the information that they need to stay safe. And they've taken it upon themselves in their Twitter. It doesn't cost much, but every day they're out there tweeting real information to keep their, their customers safe. I think that that's a model that oh, I can't wait to get back to campus and in the classroom because, you know, we're going to talk about it because it's a really an amazing moment for that brand.
0: Well, let's not wait until you're back. Let's go ahead and and have you maybe do a little teaching here. What are some yeah. of the things in addition to the example you just gave, what are some things that students should be paying attention to right now that would perhaps even inform some of their career decisions or their understanding how to approach a, a big pandemic, which, you know, I I can't imagine this would have ever come up in an interview a job interview before, but I can imagine moving forward, a question might come up, how would you handle this?
1: I think it's different for each, like we have a lot of different brands at Merkley that have different relationships to the pandemic. We have an orange juice brand that's actually doing really well. You know, like you would imagine most
0: food brands that can barely keep their product on the shelf, they're not struggling. But they're probably not but, having to advertise either. No, but
1: we are. I mean, they're also not needing to cut their spending because this will pass. Then they'll be back to their competitive set and people will still need to know who they are. But yeah, you're right. Orange juice is selling without me having to. I think if you're if you if you want orange juice, you're grabbing orange juice. You're not even I think right now you're not really looking at the label. That's one side of it. But then there are other brands, you know, almost all of them that are struggling mightily. This is something that I do all the time on every brand that I'm the creative director of, depending on the size of the brand. We either get together once a quarter or twice a year, and we game out situations. Always with the thought of how do we advance the brand? How do we make the brand mean more to people? What is their, how does their why for being, not their what that they are, but how does their why for being enhance their relationship with their customers in a way that's not just, we want you to come buy this thing. This is maybe a little off the point, but as we're getting closer to me coming back to campus, I've been gathering pieces of work that I think relate to the message I want to deliver in the classroom. Right now, there's a, you know, in these times, and think about how tone-deaf this there's a brand for dishwashing detergent that's trying to convince people that they should wash their dishes every day because it really doesn't use that much water to use your dishwasher. So even if it's not full, the bald-faced, crass thinking that's going on there is they just want you to use more of these things so you buy more of these things. And there's no benefit, there's no why to that. There's no, there's no increased connection to the brand. And then you come across something like Stakems that wants to connect entirely. Now, I'm not sure that in my we used to, we call them the box of 100 idea meetings and what we try to do is have as many ideas as we possibly can that take on different situations so for a restaurant brand we'll game out what happens inevitably when there's a twitter storm about somebody getting sick at the restaurant what do we do and we game that out and we come up with idea upon idea upon idea what do we do if, you know, I've been in this situation where there's, I mean, you remember the swine flu? I worked on a restaurant brand that sold a lot of pork then. And even though the swine flu wasn't something that's going to get anybody sick, we had to figure out how to keep people engaged. I try to do this in the classroom, but I definitely do this with my clients. Periodically, we will think about things that have nothing to do with what's in front of us right now. And we'll have ideas based on on if something like that happens. We also, so that's half of it. The other half of it is. How do we have ideas that will cost the client nothing, but that will enhance their bottom line? So, you know, constantly trying to think of new ways to package things, sell things, and, and connect with their customers in ways that we think the customer really is, is missing right now. Like, what's, what's missing? There's a lot of news now that they were, you know, that, that Dr. Fauci was out there talking about this. There was a lot of about that this is coming. And on some level, I feel like, because I work on so many food brands, I wish we thought about this particularly. And we will in the future. If you're a senior in our school and you're in an interview, I would talk about this. I would talk about the need to go past the assignments and past the strategy the way, it, the way it's written and past just the what's in front of you and think a little bit outside of that and think a little bit about the brand as a, as a connection to a customer like Sakem's did. When this is over, I think people will remember. They did something important here and they were helpful, and I
0: think that they'll benefit from that. So will people I mean which is more important. Do you think that a cataclysmic event like this underscores the value for our strategic communication students of being in a journalism school and, and learning journalistic skills?
1: I can go further than yes. <laughs> I think yes is ball caps. When I tell people I work with the school that I teach in, they're a little perplexed by that. even though I work at a, a really great agency, with really interesting clients in the largest media capital in the world and also as part of the largest strategic communication company consortium. And they all do this, but none of them really put it into words. But they say, why are you in the journal school? Why aren't you in the business school? They say, well, look, what have we been talking about today? Or what have we been talking about the last month? We're trying to dig deeper you know, sort of, we call, I like to call it in the classroom, going upstream to where the truth is hiding about these things. I know 100% that if my storytelling is true and based in that very simple Venn diagram of what is best and truest and most important about a client, what is best and truest and most in need from a prospect or a customer, what is in that little area, which is really easy to figure out once you think about it in journalistically like that, or, you know, or looking for the truth. That's always where we need to be and where we need to talk to people. When you put it in those terms and the real digging for, you know, like just the, you know, the, what, the interviewing CEOs about her company is, you know, I get so much out of that. And then, and then I'm one of the rare a lot, creat- a lot of creatives don't like going to focus groups. I love going to focus groups because I love just listening to the way people talk and what they're afraid of and what they need and all those sorts of things. And that all needs to show up and that, so that somebody could connect and trust the brand. I feel like what I learned in the, you know, my you know it's like I, I've talked about this in the past, how I started out at Ohio University as a news and information student and got the tap on the shoulder from Ralph Isner that maybe this wasn't going to be my life. But I did catch the bug of truth-seeking, you know, and, and storytelling. I translated that into my advertising career, and I think that's why journalism is, I think, just so completely important and relevant and all those things. I promise this will be the last reference of Steakums, but I don't think I've just talked about Steakums more in the last 10 minutes here than I have in my whole life. Somebody there said, somebody must have seen Some one of their customers or something, somebody must have tweeted something or Facebook post some some like wildly wrong information about how what this is. And somebody there said, oh, my goodness, our customers are wrong about this. They're misinformed and they took it upon themselves. They didn't have to, but they took it upon themselves. And that that just that to me is really important.
0: Your career has had some twists and turns along the way. I'd like to have you share with our listeners, how is it that you got from point A, when you walked in the door at Ohio University as a School of Journalism student, to point B, where you're back in the industry now working as a more senior advertising person?
1: Senior, that's a really good way to describe it. One thing I do know is that having plans, like really planning it out all the way is just not really the way it works. It's always been kind of uh, one thing happens after another. But but I got to Ohio University, and I did want to be a journalist. I wanted to be Jimmy Breslin. I wanted to be a, a New York columnist. And that, for whatever reason, probably because I wanted to get there too fast, it wasn't happening. And Dr. Izzard directed me to the Advertising and Public Relations program. And uh, and that was—and I really—I love the combination of storytelling and being creative, I got to New York pretty quickly, had some success, some like surprising, lucky success very early by working with the right person at the right time on the right project where I'm in my early 20s and on a set shooting major television campaigns. And that just that changed my life. And that was what got made my career. I went from there, never thought I'd leave New York. The next thing we know we're we're in the midwest and i'm working at great agencies in the midwest and really learning how to write and learning how to do funny work and learning how to not only be an agency guy but be a be a counselor to clients and that led me to being a creative director and once i became a creative director i started seeing that being a creative director was being a teacher also you know like i i spent once i got it through my head that i didn't have to do all the ideas and that there was a real satisfaction with helping other people do what they do, I started feeling like, hey, that's teaching. And that's really, I, I, I really love that. And I love being a creative director. I was a creative director for a couple of decades. And one day I get a call from the Advertising Education Foundation. They want to know if I want to speak on college campuses. And I said, absolutely, as long as Ohio University is the first one, because I needed to get back there to, I promised Tom Peters, who's my advisor, who still teaches, that one day I would come back. My senior year, I had a dental procedure. I couldn't do the oral report at the end of my college career. I told him, I'll come back. I'll do it when my career has been great. I'll give you my first award I ever won. And lo and behold, I got to do that. Fell back in love with Ohio University, being on campus with the whole idea and met, you know, Craig Davis and Hong Chen and you and just started peppering you guys with questions about how to become a professor. And then lo and behold, I become a professor and it took, you know, you and I both know how long that took. And, and it was, every, I wouldn't have changed thing. And I just loved doing that. And then what I discovered was I got around a lot of creative students because we have a lot of creative students at Ohio University. And I was like, I miss this. (laughs) I miss the doing part of this. So an opportunity came along with one of my former agencies, Merkley and Partners in New York, to run a couple of pieces of national restaurant chains. And I just thought, you know what? This is going to be good on two levels. It's going to scratch that desire to be creative and to do something creative again. I've been teaching for four and a half years, and a lot happens in this business in four and a half years. And me being back in the agency world is going to be immeasurably good for students when I come back to that, because there are things I do on a daily basis creatively that I didn't do when I left seven years ago. There was just there are there whole, whole parts of my job that take up entire days and weeks that I didn't even do. And we didn't do as an agency. and now is important, valuable, lucrative for the agency and that's going to be good because the students need i i know they like it coming from the horse's mouth and and also i kept as up to speed as i could from my office in athens but there's something much more informative i think for the students for because i've now i'm in the fray and i'm spending a lot of time solving problems in media that i just didn't work in before
0: you wanted to be a writer yes as you said and you wanted to write in a, in a very news, perhaps opinion style, but, but not advertising or PR when you, you know, when you started. But then when you made the pivot, your interest in writing didn't just go away. I would assume it was just a little different. So maybe help me understand how it is similar and how is it different from what you originally thought you were going to do.
1: I come across a lot of writers in my job that I'm not sure they consider themselves writers. You know What I love about, what well, what's worked for me in my approach to my job is that I've always approached it as a writer. I have someone who said this to me several times, writers write. And I'm sure you've said that to people, and I'm sure you've said it to yourself, or you've heard it said to you, writers write. And I've gone past just writing for my job, written screenplays, I had a screenplay made into a film, and I feel like all that, every opportunity to write and to actually hear the way my voice sounds has benefited right down to the emails I'll write today for a pharmaceutical company. Because I believe that if you write, if you constantly write, if you write in in ways that you want people to actually hear, you'll it'll be conversational, it'll be colloquial, and I think you'll connect better with people. So... I've always felt like writing is at the absolute center of everything that I've done. There's another reason why I think that, you know, coming out of the journalism school. I mean, we have we have students in strategic communication that have taken the reporting classes, you know, that 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 do those sorts of things. That's going to only help. It helps it helps me with I mean I know I'm going on and on here, but believe it or not, it helps me with brevity. It helps me with I believe that my work even though it's not news and information, has an inverted triangle even. You know, I tried to make my leads impactful and all those sorts of things I think I learned in Athens. And I, I, whether I whether I learned exactly how to do it there or not, I learned that it was important and I learned there was always going to be value in it. And there's one other thing about writing that I tell everybody in my class and everybody who works for me. You got to read what you write out loud. I don't know if you tell students that, but... When you read what you write out loud in your, like literally reading it, I think that changes the way you approach your work and the way you approach your language. I've got 39 years of hearing myself read everything I write out loud and to see how it actually is going to sound to somebody.
0: I definitely have always said that in broadcast writing classes. And I, I also do that in songwriting because that's the way it's going to be received. But it's interesting to think about perhaps even you know reading a tweet out loud or reading
1: i read every oh god i you know because i have i have two employers so you know and i know my tweets are your own you know but you know i think about that i think about and not not that i i don't pull punches but but i don't ever want to i don't want to be the ghastly uh typo but also i just wanted to sound right i want it to sound like somebody speaking you know and and so so yeah i read the, i read every email I, re- I send to people over and over, like at least twice i read every headline every subject line everything i read not only because you know i know that only my broadcast work the movie radio those sorts of things are actually heard but Everything you write is heard in the head of the person reading it. I try to make sure that in my reader's mind, in their voice, it sounds the way I want it to sound. And the only way for me to do that is to hear me, hear me read it.
0: When the dust settles and the green light comes back on for all of us, and you come back to Athens, what, what's the first thing you're going to do when you get to Athens?
1: Wow, I think I'm going to go to Donkey. And I'm going to get the oat milk latte and I'm going to sit among people. (laughs) I think that's, I think that's something I probably will do. My wife and I talk about this, you know, there's, there's some restaurants here in Columbus, you know, like I would count Salon in, 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 Athens and, you know, probably ginger. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I, I miss, I miss being out and, uh, I miss that. I miss that like crazy.
0: I'm sort of anticipating groups of strangers just coming up to each other (laughs) and giving each other a high five or a hug or just... You know,
1: I wonder if that's going to come... I don't know about that. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not
1: high fives, but but, uh, we were doing this thing before we all left the office for this, you know, now it's a month exactly. We were doing toe taps. You know, we were hitting each other. We were like, we were coming up to each other and just tapping each other's toe to toe. You know, it's amazing. I think about, you know, we do this thing where we take students to Barcelona. And one of the things, one of the cultural lessons we learn in Barcelona is how different uh, uh, personal spaces in Spain than it is in the United States. You know, because we're, you know, everybody has their preconceived notions. And in Spain, the lesson is you have to speak to somebody with your toes touching. That's how close they are. And I wonder how they're handling it. This must be doubly mind-blowing to, uh, to somebody in Barcelona to have to have six feet.
0: Chuck Borghese, it's been a pleasure having you on the Scripps Talks. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I really, I really enjoyed talking to you.